Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snow Pro Ski School based here in Val in Switzerland. You've caught uh, me uh, on a day when there was a big storm gone through um, gone through Switzerland last night and we've had snow down to about 2,000 metres and it's starting to feel quite wintry actually, um, which is nice. It's nice to see snow on the mountains and it's kind of motivated me to get my my diary in order to go and um, and to go and ski but I'm, I'm starting a little bit later deliberately this this year I don't really need to start skiing in August to be honest um, so I'm going to go and get my ski season started in the next couple of weeks or so work commitments aside because um, uh, the football season is going to be crazy this autumn um, but hopefully I should have a week off coming up uh, fairly soon and I'll go up and stay in Saspe for a few days and with any luck the stars will align and uh and it'll be open down to Marinia and we can get some, um, uh, you know, decent mileage under under the skis, which will be lovely. Um, I've got a brilliant interview this week, um, one that I really, really enjoyed doing with Dan Egan. Um, it's a little bit of red meat for you guys from uh, from the US who make up about you know, 40% of the listenership of, of this podcast. And, and I thank you very much, you guys, for, for, for listening. Um, Dan's a, a US Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame famer. Um, and he's featured in numerous Warren Miller um, ski movies. Uh, he runs his own uh, camps and clinics in the US and Europe. Um, and he's just brought out a new book. So uh, Dan got in touch with me. Um, he's brought out a new book. It's called 30 Years in a White Haze. And it, and it, it, it talks about kind of him growing up, um, how he sort of got his, his start in the industry and uh, and, and then the sort of the evolution of extreme skiing and the stuff that he was doing um, in the late 80s and, and 90s, um, which is quite a sort of seminal time for, for around it, our industry. Um, it's an amazing book. Uh, I, I ploughed through it in two or three days and it was um, yeah, it was difficult to put down and uh, it was a really, really, really interesting read. So um, highly recommended and we talk a bit about that in the book and uh, and it's it's certainly something that I'd recommend to you to read and it's um, it's quite different from all of the other ski ski books that I've read um, in the past. Um, in this part one, we talk about his book a, a little bit. Um, we also talk about other books, so uh, there's a few tangents already going on. Um, talking about growing up skiing, influences, coaching kids and, and also a bit about polar exploration. Um, in this podcast, uh, we had a little bit of interference on the line. I've tried to edit it out as much as I possibly can. Um, it was either interference on the line or one of those kind of singing bugs that you, you get in the garden. Um, also cowbells you might hear and also um, some guy turned on like a circular saw in the other garden. Um, so there's a, a few random noises in this one, but um, but I think uh, it's it should be fine with what I've done in the post-edit. So um, enjoy this first half and uh, I will catch up with you somewhere in the middle. Dan Egan, welcome to the Ski Instructor Podcast. How how are you? I'm doing great today, David. It's uh, looking forward to winter, and uh, here in New England, back on the East Coast, uh, temperatures shifted a little bit into a more fall temperature, and we're going to see the leaves turning soon. Well, New England, let's talk about that straight away. I'm going to dive into you because I didn't tell you I was going to talk about this, but you're originally from Boston, aren't you? 
and yes, I have just I've been looking around for books to read for ages right and so one thank you very much for we talk we're here to talk about a little bit about your book and you but in we contained within your book is a recommendation for another book which was called Blue Highways right yes what a book thanks for the recommendation I've just gone through that I've never really read a book that's kind of written like that before it's absolutely brilliant it's a crazy, you know, like a real sort of, um, what would you call, like a historical document. Yeah, I, I think Blue Highways is amazing. You know, that, that book of traveling around off of the beaten path, don't get on the highways or the interstates and travel the Blue Highways. You know, ever since I've read that book way back in the 90s, I've done that. And I did it again this summer. I drove across country off of the highways. Oh. And, and it was awesome. And I, I've done it now three times during the 4th of July. And if you want to see Americana, you know, you won't drive through Iowa and South Dakota uh, in some of these farm states on the 4th of July. It's really a sight to be seen. It's beautiful. I do. I did my time traveling around the U.S., traveled around the U.S. by by train, actually, uh, once. And I remember going through those northern northern states, you know, the Dakotas and stuff like that. I went out from Chicago across to to Washington yeah. State, and yeah. and there's there's. I mean, I don't think it's an understatement to say there is nothing there. I sat and <laughs> looked out of a train window for twelve hours, and there was it didn't change at all. I was like, this is vast. This place. Like yeah. Much bigger than you could possibly imagine. The scale of the country that you live in is incredible. It really uh, is incredible, and I think it's not fully understood um, from outside the states when you think about the diversity of our culture in this country mm. and, and why there's so many different points of view on such a big place. It starts to make sense when you see the scope and scale of it. And the other thing is, you know, the folklore of the West and, you know, that that you can make it in the West, that, that the dreams are born, go West, young man, you know, all these sort of things that Americans grow up with. Um, and I think that's still true today. I think people are still seeking their fortunes by going West. Yeah. Yeah. Well, talking of the East... Um, so the, it, while we're still on, on literary references, I've just finished going through uh, all of the Robert B. Parker Spencer detective novels. It's set in Boston, um, and they are brilliant. Like uh, it, uh, I don't know whether you've had you know you've ever read them, but my goodness, if you have a chance, the character. Spencer and the the way that the the author describes Boston, which must, which will probably resonate with you when you're growing up, absolutely brilliant, brilliant books, and I'm 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 gutted that I've sort of finished them, you know. Yeah, it's uh, that that is a great character, and those are great, amazing books, and you know, there's so many, you know so many films and things have been produced in and around Boston, just in commercials and the Boston accent, um, you know, it, it's really, it's really quite something when you can park your car and go over there and, you know, do those sorts of things. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it's such a rich city as far as culture goes and diversity. 
And in my childhood in the 70s, you know, Boston was a very, very active city on so many fronts. Hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about that because Boston, although you're you're kind of you're, you're relatively close to that that sort of East Coast skiing scene, I was really interested to read. So we, we uh, you've just published a book, Thirty Years in a White Haze. Um, your story of, of you and your, your your brother and the sort of evolution of extreme skiing. Um, you were in and around that that scene growing up. You've been in something like eight or nine Warren Miller films, and you're in the U.S. Skiing Hall of Fame. So you know, we, it's, it's there's a lot that's gone into this book, a lot about that journey. But how does a how does a kid from Boston end up, you know, part of the extreme skiing scene all over the world? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a a question that we really dive into in the book because you know it, it's an unlikely scenario, right? Um, we weren't a mountain family. We didn't own a house in the, in the North country. We didn't go away on weekends to ski. Uh, we weren't part of ski teams. We were just a big group of kids. You know, there were originally were eight kids in the family. And, um, you know, my mom had her hands full and my mom was a gym teacher and so, you know, she loved sport and, and she just got us all out of the house. Mm. And she had grown up the only, the only girl in a family of six boys. And um, as, a, as a kid, uh, my, they, she skied in the 40s in Boston, down the center strip of the parkway. <laughs> and because my grandfather lived on the highest hill in the city. Okay. So... So that was a really pretty crazy ski run. When I look at it, it wasn't very wide, and they had one pair of wooden skis and a pair of boots, and they would, all the kids shared it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, my mom was into skiing. My dad was into skiing. My dad, as a boy, would walk four miles in his leather boots to ski in the local golf court uh, in the city he lived in, um, the city of Quincy, outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. So... You know, and and so they they were both skiers. Uh, my dad was a sailor, and they joined us uh, up for a ski club. So on Saturdays in the in the winter, probably you know six to seven Saturdays a year, we would get on a bus um, out at the highway and go skiing. And it was my mother's way of getting a day off. She put every all the kids on the bus, even my mom, even my dad, and mm. so. Um, and, and part of the deal with joining that ski club was that we had to take lessons. So I took traditional PSIA ski lessons from, you know, really the age of five till I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we couldn't, we couldn't uh, not take the lessons if you got on the bus. So, and you, you progressed, you know, you got a, you got a, a letter or a patch when you moved on to a higher group. And eventually you became part of this demo team, which, you know, would be considered an all-mountain ski team today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that was pretty exciting for me. And, and being competitive, of course, I wanted to get on the demo team. My older brothers had been on the demo team. And, uh, you know, that, that, you know, propelled me to try and get, you know, get my skills better. Um, but then really an odd twist of fate was my oldest brother, Bob, 
uh, after college, worked at a ski shop in Boston called the Ski Market. And the Ski Market went on to be the biggest ski retailer in the country, in the States. Uh, they owned 21 locations at their heyday. And Bob ran one of the stores not far from our home for 10 years. Um, and there, as a teenager, I worked in the ski shop and eventually as a sales guy and a ski technician. But more importantly, I got to meet all the sales reps all from Rosignol and K2 and um, Kessley and, mm -hmm. and all the brands. And I went to all of the, the, you know, the clinics on the different products. I even, my freshman year of high school, wrote a, senior, wrote a project on how to make a ski. And, and so I really got to meet a lot of people uh, in the industry through that ski shop. Uh, well, that was happening, my older brother John was a ski bum. He had run away from home to to ski at Sugarbush, Vermont, and he was getting really good at skiing, and my parents were uh, not wanting me to go visit him. They had forbid it because, you know, he was six years older and it wasn't appropriate for a kid my yeah. age to visit a <laughs> ski bum. Um, so those worlds kind of started to set the roots for one John raising the bar of what it meant to be a skier, uh, and to me learning about the ski industry. Um, and when, when finally we got to the point, you know, years late, decades later, when we actually made a movie, uh, the ski industry was there for the Egan brothers because those reps had become the head of marketing at Solomon and Head and, and, and Rozzy. Yeah. They knew us and they supported us. So, just to take you a little bit back to that ski club, it's quite interesting actually, because I just said to you um, off air that we're so, it's September now, everyone's kind of starting to wake up to the possibility that snow's coming again in December, and I've just uh, just gone into a couple of the schools that we work with, put together all of the program that we're doing for winter, and it's quite, it's quite an exciting time, because whoever those people were that were putting in place that that sort of bus, you know, that coach that went to the ski, uh, you know, went to the ski mountain um, when you were young and, you know, put in place the program of the lessons. That's kind of what I'm doing right now. So that, that so that's, that's always been ongoing. <laughs> you never know, I suppose, who the next Dan Egan is going to be out of all those little kids. You never know who you're going to influence, you know, with what you do and what you put in place. But the important thing is, is that you're doing it. So you're giving the access to those, those kids, and you're sort of making making skiing available to them. Um, when you think back to, to those days, like, do you remember any particular coaches or anything, anyone that was sort of particularly influential for you, or, and what what it was that was influential about them? No, that's a great question because it's so true, right? Mm. Um, you never know what's going to spark, what's going to connect with kids. Uh, and coaches are, you know, in my opinion, you know, the most important people in, in young development because they have access uh, to, to children in a really powerful way. Um, and there's generally some sort of bonding that goes on between athletes and coaches and mentors, gym teachers, teachers in general. Mm. Uh, and so for me, I had teachers all around me. 
my grandfather was an educator, superintendent of Boston schools. Uh, my uncle was an educator in the Boston schools. My mom was a gym teacher. Um, and I, you know, there were all teachers around me. And, and uh, my soccer coach, Tom Herget, in the fourth grade, he started town soccer. We had, he had, we had never had a travel team or a soccer program in the town. Mm-hmm. He was the high school's coach, and he was a young man. You know, he's in his 20s when he first came to my elementary school. And so Tom really opened up, Coach Herget opened up a world for us and all our friends, my friends. We started playing soccer. And, you know, when when that fourth grade class became this the senior class in the high school, we had our first winning record for the town. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, you know... And what Tom really, really, in, in, you know, instilled in me and my friends, we're all still friends today, was this idea of uh, character, what it took to have a noble character uh, in the face of losing, you know, and how do you overcome this and how do you represent the town and yourself well. And uh, he had a very high standard and he was a very gentle motivator but uh, we had to sort of meet his standard of character. Mm. Um, and so that, that really, and the other thing that he did, which I was used to because I was number six in a family of eight, mm. uh, was he had us training with older players the whole time. So when I was in middle, you know, elementary school, we trained with the, high, the junior high. Mm. When we were in junior high, we trained with the high school, and in high school, I played on a men's league. Um, so that idea of playing up, uh, the idea of being mentored by other players and networking was sort of anchored in there. So by the time I'm a teenager and I'm working with older people at the ski market, I have this idea of mentorship and, and how, how these people might potentially help me down the road. Mm. So, you know... And from the specific ski club side, we took lessons from the Europeans that had ski schools here in New England. Paul and Paula Villar, Egon Zimmerman, you know, these were Olympians Mm -hmm. uh, and real big names. And they had Austrian instructors throughout their ski schools. So my ski school, uh, you know, the the Blizzard Ski Club, when we went to the Egon, uh, the Paul and Paula Villar ski school at Sunapee, uh, Mount Sunapee in New Hampshire, they were drill sergeants. Those Austrians, they loved technique. Mm-hmm. You know, we would sidestep up, side slip down, sidestep up, side slip down. Um, and, angu- you know, we would do angulation drills. And, you know, these are early days for snowmaking, really firm, hard East Coast conditions, you know, icy snow. And technique was really important. So what was instilled in me was repetition uh, and the importance of technique um, and, and the idea of practicing, you know, um, and, and repeating it and doing it again. So, you know, I was kind of getting it from all fronts as an athlete. And uh, I would say that those Austrians, you know, what they really instilled with me is that ski technique matters 
Um, yeah, anybody can go straight and go fast, but here's how you turn, here's how you turn properly, and here's how you can relate that turn into moguls, onto ice, and onto mogul and racing. So mm -hmm. that, that's super interesting. And all the while, my older brothers, both Bobby and John, were amazing skiers. So they were great athletes, so they wouldn't wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> they would ditch me. I, you know, I was eight and six years younger than them. And so for me to try to keep up, I had to get good, and uh, I had to sort of earn their respect. Yeah. Uh, do you, I mean, that Austrian school of, of things that, uh, and that sort of, you know, drilling of technique, if you could transport yourself and that style, like, into the present day, do you think that would fly? Because a lot of the stuff now that is about teaching, they talk about, you know, safety, enjoyment, learning, you know, fun, being, you know, learning through games, that kind of stuff. I wonder, thinking about the clients that we deal with, if we were, if we were too hard on some of the kids these days, here's me sounding like a grumpy old man again, but if we, if we were like, yeah, if we were, if we were being that hard on kids these days, they would probably go back and tell their parents that it wasn't much fun and then we wouldn't see them again. So either teachings evolved or, or kids have become more sensitive, maybe. Do you have any thoughts on well, that? Here's, the, here's where I draw the line, right? Because, you know, you motivate through, through uh, a very different, through different ways. Kids, what hasn't changed is kids still want to achieve. Mm. There's still the desire to be good at. You know, we see that in the X Games, in the Olympics, as the age gets younger, kids are really, are younger medalists all the time. So kids want to be pushed. The problem is the system isn't set up to push them anymore because we're afraid to hurt their feelings or we're afraid they're not going to like it, right? Mm -hmm. But they, they're longing for the challenge and they're up for the challenge. So from the beginning, you know, in my coaching, I set the bar. I, this is what we're going to achieve. And, and, and I make it fun on the way to achieving it, but not easy. And I think the problem that educators have fallen into, and parents, quite honestly, is they want to be liked. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they're, they're, more, they're more vested in being liked than being respected. And there's a difference. Um, so, you know, I was the middle school soccer coach for, I think, close to eight or nine years. Uh, so much so that, you know, third graders would say, I want to play for you, you know, like, um, and, you know, the team looked like a team. They dressed as a team. You know, there was something to emulate. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I think these things matter. And, and as far as like sort of the drills go, um, you know, we have to give kids more credit. They're willing to work hard. They're willing to, to work. You know, if, if Johnny is not willing to work hard, but Susie is, Johnny eventually wakes up and sees, wow, Susie's getting good. Like, mm. do I, you know, so they, 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 their peer-to-peer -peer, uh, illustrations and examples are also equally important. You know, this idea of... Uh, group teach you know we're going to teach this method mm. that's not how i grew up right i grew up 
being taught through an individual method. This is this person is learning this way or this is learning that way. I remember, you know, my my physics teacher in high school relating everything to a boat. Now that I could do, hmm. right? I understand pulleys. I understand that, but it wasn't. And, and he made an effort to to give me those illustrations. Well, he made the kid next to me a different illustration. Hmm. Um, so one thing the kids really respond to is their name. They want to hear their name. Mm-hmm. And adults want to hear their name. So when you call somebody by name, they respond. Yeah. So for an example, I don't when I coach soccer, I would never I, I never knew why know why coaches do this. They do mass substitution. Right? Mm-hmm. Well the problem with a mass substitution is you didn't call the individual by name. So I only put in one or two people at a time, and I call them by name. Jennifer, Gary, get over here. Now they're important, right? Yeah. Now they're now they're recognized, and you're being recognized. Now look, I'm calling you guys. I need you right now in these positions for these reasons. Okay. Now go do your best. Hmm. Well, that's a mission. I've put them on a mission, right? So. If you put drilling into context, hey, we're going to learn, you know, we're first of all, you have to think about manifestation, how we're going to manifest a bigger idea, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have to set the intention. You want to be, you want to go off the jumps, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to help you get off the jump. Before we get off the jump, we have to learn about speed control, speed checking, how you manage the speed before the ramp. So then we're going to do these series of drills that accomplish that. And when you break it down with an intention and the idea of manifestation, one day you're going to do a trick, then their their minds fall into line. And that's the beauty of what we know today because we know the mechanics of that. Yeah. So from my point of view, I think, you know, teaching, it depends on the teacher and the mentor. Like there's an easy way out and there's an educational way to achieve a goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that. And the name thing is actually really, really important. Especially like the way that I tend to try and coach football, especially in a sort of, uh, um, yeah, in, a, in a, a drills and coaching kind of situation. But the other thing is also match play will be if right. someone does something good, you use their name and you praise them publicly for that. You know, if you see something good, say, yeah, you know, John, that was amazing. And you can do that within the game. You don't need to stop the game for that. You know, he hears it and all of his mates hear it. It's really important that. Um, Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that I've been trying to use lately, which I think is, it seems to be really, really, it works really well from about five to nine years old, is that you can stop Say you see something amazing, or you you kind of you're in the middle of a drill. Stop the session. You say, "Stop everyone! Stop what you're doing. Look over there at little Johnny, and watch him do this because he's got it. That guy's got it. He's doing it perfectly. And get him to do it, and all the others will be like, "Oh, well, he's just been like praised publicly. I'm going to try and do it as well." And you should see the response you get out of that. They're like, "Oh, you know, am I doing it because him and this and the other?" And and it, it's yeah, a real right, motivator, right. you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's great, right? Because now they're vested in it, right? Yeah. Now they're vested in it. And yeah. um 
And so I, I think it's really important, you know, I, I, I really do. And, um, and, you know, as, as you, you know, from all your teaching and coaching is like the, re the reward for that is at when they get older and the few that come back. Right. Mm, um, yeah. yeah. That's the, for me, that's the reward. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and you know, whoever it was in those old days that sort of created a Dan Egan or as, as whatever. It's interesting yeah. that that concept of, of you know, being around older people. I'm not sure how much mm. that happens anymore. And some of the most confident, um, confident young people I know are sort of exposed to that world. And I remember when I was growing up, here we go, me doing that grumpy old man thing again. But when I was growing up, my parents had... Um, we still have. They just got. It's just just literally closed out after forty five years. Um, they've retired now. But the the I used to go and work on on weekend mornings and holidays in my parents' business, which was an electrical wholesalers business. And they'd get me down there, and that's kind of how I'd earn my pocket money, fetching and carrying stuff. This is from like you know nine, ten years old or something like that. And then by the yeah, time I yeah. got to sort of I don't know twelve, thirteen or whatever, I was on the trade counter like dealing with builders and plumbers and, and electricians like selling them stuff and I didn't really yeah. I didn't really feel very confident about it never really you know got a handle on it you know, I always felt a bit self-conscious when I was young but and I still do to a certain extent but the the because sometimes when you're teaching it's all you know for me it feels a bit like a, a bit of an act you know I'm not necessarily who people think I am but the the long story short is is that hanging around with those older people it sort of forces you to grow up it forces it forces you a little bit to to, to be um how would you say kind of wise beyond your years slightly and, and it sort of shows you how things work as as a kid I, although that I think that should be balanced also against what we're doing as a society at the moment, which is kind of allowing our children to grow up a little bit too fast. So I yeah, think there's a balance it's, it's between true. the two. That's true, right? Because technology, even as adults, we, we can't, we're consumed by it other than, re than really utilizing it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. But, but you hit upon a couple of things, and I talk about this in, in, in the book. Mm. You know, what my parents instilled in us was confidence and independence. Mm. And they did that, like you say, without making it a goal. They didn't say, hey, I'm going to make you confident and independent. If you do this, you'll be confident and independent. Mm. No, they said, no, you're going to be responsible. Do the chores you're told. Mm. You know, be show up on time. Do not quit. Um, you know, go out into the world, you know, and... And I think that that confidence and independence is sort of really good. And as you say, of course, you know, there's a questioning or am I ready for this or I'm nervous, right? But we did it anyways. Mm. And that's the most important thing is you do it anyways. You know, even as an adult, managing different projects, all the different companies I've started, all these sort of things, I tell myself, just keep doing it. Mm. Just keep doing it. Do it again. It's working. It's working. Do it again. And, you know, I, I do that with athletes. You know, I don't say, hey, you created a great edge angle on that turn. 
I said, that was a good turn. Do it again. Mm. I let them internalize it. Do it again um, without analyzing it. That was good. Do it again. Don't do that. What should I do? That's my favorite ski tip, you know? Yeah. What should I do? Not that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, well, what should I do? Well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't drop my hand, you know? What's the alternative, right? So, yeah. you know, this idea of breaking patterns um, is to have an equal equal and, and opposite reaction, right, um, to the pattern you're in and, and then internalize that feeling. How'd that feel? Felt great. Really? Do, yeah, felt amazing. Okay, go do it again. And now they're thinking about how they felt. You know the old saying that we're not thinking machines that feel, we're feeling machines that think. Yeah. And so we want to persuade through emotion. You know, we're not going to persuade through logic. Why are we using logic, particularly with kids? We need emotion, you know? That's why when you use words like amazing or uh, that was outrageous or that was so good, you know, that you're, you're triggering emotion. And when you point out the good play in the player, it's not like, you know, he, he used the outside of his foot and he wheeled the ball. It was like, Johnny, wheel the ball. Now you guys do that, right? So this idea of just of, of doing what you see and, and uh, you know, all of the great, you know, explorers or people who have been sort of on the edge of things, the idea that if one person could do it, so can I. Mm. So can I. And why not me, right? Instead of why me, why not me? Um, and so I think my brother and I, as skiers from a city, by the time I started racing, I was a uh, you know in my mid to late teens. I didn't know anything about the kid, you know, was a great junior champion or this or that. I didn't care about who I was racing. He was a fast racer, so why not me? Mm-hmm. Why not me? And so I just took the northern kids on full blast. Like, you know, I came out of the city, had never raced an organized race. I got to top 10 in New England in high school and uh, state champion. So, like, I was, I just assumed I would win. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? I like it, but where do you think that, where do you think that comes from? In, 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 I'll give you, give you an example. Give you an example, because this is like, and, and listener, this is the uh, a short hop into the into the weird and wonderful world of my mind. Um, it, like every summer, it feels like a little bit. Uh, you get to April, tidy up the ski season, um, finish all your admin and stuff, and then summer. Go summer, June, July, August. Nothing happens. No one's thinking about skiing whatsoever. It feels a little bit like going into like round the dark side of the moon or whatever. And yeah, everyone's, you know, radio silence, can't get hold of anyone, blah, blah, blah. And like it, it, every year, even though I know that it always comes back, it's hard to not doubt yourself. You know, like you sit there and you say, oh, crikey. But where does your, where does that thing that you were talking about, that sort of, you know, why not me, what, that sort of innate uh, self-confidence or is it curiosity? Like, where does that come from in you? Or was it, you know, is that something you were born with, do you think? I think it's a combination of things. You know, I, I think some people are born to be intrepid, you know. Mm. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, my mom, she threw all the kids out of the house. <laughs> Get yeah. out of the house. And, 
she didn't care. I mean, she did care. I, I don't mean to say she didn't care. But it wasn't like we went for group activities. You know, my younger brother, he went to play baseball. Hmm. He didn't. I went, I went to sail. We played soccer together, but in the summer, we did separate things. Now, my sailing required me to walk a half quarter mile to the trolley, take the trolley to the train, take the train to the bus, and walk a half mile to the yacht club in the city, hmm. in a rough city. This wasn't like a, you know, blue collar. It was a blue collar working yacht club. It wasn't a highfalutin yacht club. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a tough place. You had to earn your stripes. Like, you know, I would be challenged on those buses and those trains and on in the city streets. Who are you? Where do you go? Where do you hang? How do you, you know, what do you, you know, who are you coming in here? You know? Mm -hmm. And out on the sailing water, you know, out on the boats, you know, I gained some confidence. Hey, I can do this. Um, and and then I had to make my way back through those street corners to get home. Mm -hmm. um, so it, that when I talk about confidence and independence, you know, there's a price to be paid. The question is how much how much you're willing to pay. Like, I really wanted the sale, so I was willing to pay the price of walking the gauntlet, so to speak, down those city streets, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and then gaining confidence in that. And I think you know this idea to do your best, right? It's sort of like a little bit, what what if my best stinks? <laughs> yeah, but at least you did your best, right? Yeah, you know? So, you know, so the question is, that it's always, to me, that saying is like, you did your best, but your best wasn't very good. Maybe, maybe it should be, you know, phrased differently, you know? Maybe instead of, well, you did your best, it should be like, well, what'd you take away? Hmm. What'd you learn? And and how are you going to improve on that? Um so, and then part of it is, you know, I'm an Irish kid, you know, you know, my favorite Irish saying is, uh, is this a private fight or can anybody be involved? You know, like <laughs> that's, uh, that's my personality to be involved. It's my personality to wake up swinging. I, I, I want to be in the game. Um, I don't want to be on the sideline. And, you know, my mom basically, you know, there were no half measures. You're either all in or you're all out. Which are you? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's where partially where it comes from. Okay. Just before we we move on, I I I wanted to. I think it's curious. Not curious. That would be wrong. So it, one of the things that struck me about reading your book was the this whole concept of right place, right time. Um, when we were, you know. You happened upon, you know, your brother, your brothers were, were skiing before you, of course, but when, when, when you were coming up and you finished all of the stuff that you were going to do and you made the full-time decision to go skiing, it sort of coincided, same thing with the people that you knew in the industry and, and so on and so forth. It all sort of seemed to have, there's a lot to be said in life, being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, by accident of birth, I guess, you know, like the, the, the date, when you were were born you happened upon that scene whereas if you were there say even 10 years later you probably would have missed a whole bunch of that that stuff that essentially made you famous right it led you to to, to all the other stuff that you've done since is that, is that something you reflect on or you know is it considered yeah. luck or, or, or what 
I, I think it's, you know, sort of a spiritual principle that, that we're all born for the right time and right place. Mm -hmm. There's a purpose. Yeah. Um, so it's bigger than us, right? Um, and although, you know, you know, some are built, built, born, you know, in diff different economic circumstances and this and that, but they're all born for the right place, the right time, and with a purpose. And, you know, if I hadn't been a skier, you know, if I had had it my way, um, you know, I, I would have played soccer. Mm -hmm. um, but I was too short and too slow. You know, like, uh, you know, I got pretty far. You know, I played a high level, played for, you know, a, a sort of a, a institution team that had won five national championships. I never, our teams never did that in my four years in college, but it was a known soccer powerhouse. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also, and still is, one of the best private, you know, voted the the best private business school in the United States. So the fact that I went there to play soccer and I ended up with a business education that really fueled my life, mm. um, that allowed me to see the situations I was in. You know, we, and we talk about this in the book, you know, I tied our career to the technological boom of the day, which was the VCR. Yeah. And I understood that the VCR was going to be our window into people's homes. And I then negotiated the rights to those films that we skied in. And then I started owning the footage in the films that we skied in. So, you know, we're all born for the right time and the right place and the right opportunities. The question is, do you see them, right? And the ones that you don't see, do you see the next one? Now, there's plenty of things that I missed. I was in the right place at the right time and said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. That's also true. Um, and, you know, so, you know, that's the beauty of age is that you can look back and go, huh, I could have done better, you know, should have maybe not insulted that person or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, and so this idea that, you know, look, when I think of Lewis and Clark walking across the country paddling boats up river not down river up river like i was not born for that time mm -hmm. um I, I wasn't born to wrestle grizzly bears you know i was born to slay other giants in my life but the giants of the day yeah. um when i look at the, the kids today i can see that they're born and bred and raised in a culture to slay the giants of their day uh, my nephews that are using technology for driverless cars and founded companies and got funded, you know, like they did far more business than I've ever done. Um, and they were born for the right time in the right place. So I, I, I find it a fascinating concept um, that, you know, we all have that in us. And I think that that's really the beauty, you know, of the human condition. Um, you can you can do it. You know, you there's countless stories of people overcoming and doing it in their day. Yeah, no, that's that's true. That's true. These it's funny um, you say that. I was going to mention another anecdote about football, but maybe I'll come back uh, soccer. Uh, um, I'll come back to that in a minute. But the one of the funny, I, I think that 
the youngsters see it, probably see opportunity slightly better than you do. But as like, you know, I, I think I see my opportunity here. Like if you had to kind of put a name on, on what I'm doing, I know what my niche is and I know that I can go after it and I can, to a certain extent, try and, and, and do the best I possibly can in the industry that I'm in. But when I look around at other opportunities and opportunities that may have existed in my father's day and stuff like that, you think to yourself, oh, crikey, like it's hard these days, I think. If you're a, if you're a kid, you look around, you think of something, but a lot of stuff has already been done or is already being done by multiple people. Whatever you can think of, chances are someone else has already thought of it. I, that, that's, but maybe I only see it from my perspective. I don't see it from the perspective of a 20-year-old, you know? I don't know whether that's just a thing that happens. Well, you know, the, 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 this idea of the collective thought, right? That the idea is not yours. It's 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 owned by the collective. Mm. It's owned by the greater. You know, so when you're when you enter into the collective, um, then you that's where the connections live. So, you know, that's where the possibilities are because just because somebody had thought about it doesn't mean they had seen the application of it. For the production of it, hmm. and and that's what I like. You know, when I'll get an idea. You know, uh, we're going to make this film, or I'm going to write this book, or you know, uh, I'm going to you know produce a live sailing event four miles off the coast. Well, I have the idea, but then I have to find the guy who can create the the wireless network four miles off the coast, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I meet, I meet that guy, and I, get, I see him using that application in a different application, and I go, is it possible to move this thing off the coast? And he says something like, I've always wondered about that. Well, now we're in cahoots, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because now we like, let's do it. So the idea that, you know, so this is kind of goes back to this idea of how we educate kids, how we motivate kids, how we move kids forward. We don't want to sort of, you know, sort of plant that seed that, uh, you know, well, just because, you know, sort of we don't want to lower the bar. We want to raise the bar. And we want to we want to illustrate how and we see this all over the globe these days, how one idea, you know, a world away can be mirrored, you know, in someplace else. Mm -hmm. Now, if you connect those two people who both thought of that idea then watch out what happens it, it's possible so uh, i i love that and i, I think um if anybody think you know look for me today i see youtube and i'm like wow what what would i have done with that like yeah. i was working with a vcr i had to find skiers who to buy my videotape who owned vcrs because they really weren't even every, everybody's home yet mm -hmm. So, you know, if I can overcome that, what can you do where technology is already pre-existing? What can I, and, and then, you know, I just had this discussion the other day, like young athletes, whether it doesn't matter on the sport, like, how are you going to stand out? You know, mm. so many kids have that skill. They all have that skill. What are you going to do? Yeah. How are you going to do it? How are you going to press? How are you going to carry yourself? Who are you, whose name are you going to remember? Like, how are you going to do it? raise the bar yeah it's true um, that's that's essentially my philosophy for skiing because you get into it you open a ski school right and, and you think well there's a load of bunch of other people 
and so my sort of overriding philosophy with the ski school is how can I do this but do this better than what has gone before you know yeah that's the, it, it drives everything um, it's yeah. really 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 important the other thing about soccer is that I, I, I kind of I, I can't play competitive football anymore I can't do 90 minutes you know my body won't hold up but I play on a, a Tuesday night um, with a bunch of you know similarly old guys and my goodness like now I have to do you remember the days when you just used to turn up kick a ball around a bit and just start playing now yeah. now I have to do like a warm up like a proper warm up you know stretching all sorts of bits and pieces out and, and doing all sorts of movement and then like just for days after it hurts and you say oh, what, what? And, and I'm so slow that's the worst bit about it just so slow <laughs> these days. my mind knows what I want to do my body will not execute anymore I'm just like oh it's awful it's a horrible feeling that you just can't do it anymore like you used to luckily I can still ski a bit but crikey like it's oh this um, yeah I don't know uh, right let's you've mentioned a couple of times about this sort of perseverance thing and in your book I thought it was really really interesting so I've read a few I've read uh, books about Shackleton. I've read books about um, the er Amundsen, the early Norwegian explorers, mm -hmm. and what those guys were doing in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds was just it, it, the word today. I think would be crazy. Really, they had no idea what they were doing when they went on some of these polar. Um, uh, yeah. expeditions to uh, the Antarctic and and the Norwegians when they were going to the North Pole and crossing Greenland that I remember reading one of the books which was about the first expedition the idea was to cross Greenland right these guys floated around on icebergs for like 12 months before they even got to the <laughs> land and they, they'd volunteers signing up for these expeditions I absolutely cannot the other one i read was um tom crean's book or the book about tom crean who was one of shackleton's kind of uh, uh guys right hand man it's just extraordinary what these guys were doing you know they had no real idea that they would get out of any of it alive either is that i mean what do you take from those guys when when you read about stuff like that you know, it's, it's, it's true, and you talk about being born for a time, like, wow. Yeah. And, and the, the gear, you know, the, what they're wearing. Um, and, you know, today we just call it, we'd call somebody out of their minds to go to the Arctic or the Antarctic dressed like, the, you know. Yeah. Um, and, um, but you, what you see is this uh, idea of perseverance, you know, and, and this idea of possibility. Uh, and how that drives mankind uh, to be the first uh, to do something that's never been done, to go to see something that hasn't been seen. Mm. Uh, and, and how powerful that is as a motivator. You also see the economics of the day. You know, what, what were they leaving behind? It couldn't have been all that comfortable. <laughs> they no. were like going to grip themselves into a ship. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like so, they 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 whatever whatever was their current day situation. This looked better, and that's like that would blow your mind too. Like, really, mm. that looked better. And then, um, 
Yeah. And then what you see, particularly in the Shackleton story, because it's so well written, mm. is you see them come into the now. You know, uh, the quote I, I put in there, you know, is that, you know, they've been on living on the monster on the ice for three plus months. Uh, they're sewing their pants, and the guy writes in his di the diary, what an ingrate I had been when others did this for me. Mm. One of the finest days I've ever had. You know, how are they finding peace in the storm? How are they finding contentment inside, internal contentment? Well, they're living in the now. They're seeing the beauty and the power of the place. And they're not, they know that to worry is futile. It will only going to kill them. Mm. That if you don't come into the now and deal with the what is in the moment, you'll never get to manifest the intention of survival. Mm -hmm. And that's really powerful, right? So, you know, that's what's beautiful about reading these stories. Um, you know, the other quote in, 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 in uh, Shackleton uh, in Endurance is, you know, they were tested and found not wanting yeah and i think that that you know i'm so soft when i whine about my wanting today <laughs> sitting yeah. you know what i mean like yeah just you know i own two cars i li i ski in the west and around the world like what's wrong in my you know yeah. there's nothing wrong, right so you know, this idea, have you been tested and found not wanting? And if you look across, well, you don't have to go far, turn on the, go to social media, turn on the news. You just hear of the not wanting, the, the, the people who are wanting. They need this, they got to have that, this isn't fair, and mm. all these sort of things. Um, so, you know, what I find is those, what those early guys and Lewis and Clark, all of them, they had a peace with themselves. And then you have to look at yourself in history, like, we're really, I don't know about you, but like, I know people, you know, I'm saving photograph albums, you know, things that, possessions that really mean nothing, but somehow trying to preserve some sort of legacy in this world, right? Mm -hmm. But when you read those adventure stories about the guys that, you know, walked across America or sailed to Antarctica and got frozen in, like, mm. you know, they're, they're, they're living. They're living. So, you know, what is it? Are you going to be known for the living or the preserving, right? So, or the gathering, you know, we all get the pick. Mm. And, and I, the, the motivation for me is in the living. Yeah. Uh, what's next? And, and that's what you see in those early days because they were on the edge. I mean, that's the equivalent of going to the moon or Mars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mine, the one, the one that comes up on me is it's on my list actually. The one is is I've become very aware of this concept of legacy since since uh, my daughter arrived, and so I'm kind right. of I'm very much kind of now trying to build something for the future. It's quite important yeah. to me now. Um, right. You know, I feel like I've done a lot of living, but now it's time to to to, to sort of create something. Um, Kind of, yeah, I don't know, like leave something behind, I suppose, maybe. I don't know, I don't, I, but I, I think when you talk about that as an individual, you talk about leaving something behind, that doesn't, it doesn't really work for me because I don't really value, I'm not, I don't place that higher value on my own kind of self-importance, you know, like it wouldn't bother me. I don't think anyone's going to particularly miss me if I'm gone, you know. So, um, 
It's a tricky one, that. So it's, it's a it's a tricky one. I hope you enjoyed the first half of the interview that I. Uh, did with Dan here. Um, it's amazing how much kind of uh, how, how similar we think about a lot of things, um, similar things that we're into, similar books and, and that kind of thing. I think that really came through in the interviews is kind of how how, how well we gelled and, and Dan's certainly a, a sort of a really easy guy to get on with and, um, and I very, very much enjoyed the, the conversation that we had. Um, the podcast is, this is probably going to take us past like 55,000 episode, uh, episode downloads, which is just absolutely amazing. And, and we've got, I've got some, I've got some really cool, um, uh, podcasts coming up actually that are already in the can and, and ready to go. Um, one is, uh, about ski boots, um, ski boots and ski boot fitting, uh, what we should be looking for and that kind of thing. Um, that's with Colin Martin of Solutions for Feet. Um, in the UK and I've also got a two-part interview because uh, it went on so long with John Olson uh, who's a ski instructor based in Verbier uh, with New Generation Ski School. Um, I've also got two or three others that I need to do um, which I need to get around to doing because uh, I want to do a sort of round table kind of Christmas special thing but I need to tell the people that I'm planning to do that with um, so I need to get on with that. Um, in this second part uh, of the podcast, we talk about sort of ski tech changes and technique that comes with that. Um, we talk about the the sort of infamous trip that Dan did to Mount Elbrus um, in, in uh, sort of uh, around nineteen ninety odd, and and that was kind of I'd say one of the defining points of his life. But also the story is amazing. Um, goes into super detail about that on the book and uh, in the book, and it was. Yeah, really um, extraordinary story, really. Um, we also touch on on some thoughts about the Free Wide World Tour and uh, and also sobriety, which is um, which are another interesting tangent. Um, so uh, I really sincerely hope that you enjoy the second half and um, I will catch you when I come back and I've had a chance to edit up those other podcasts that we um I was talking about earlier. I hope you're all well and you're all getting excited about the ski season and I will catch you on the next episode. Let me talk to you. It ties into, there's there's some amazing writing in your book about the, the Mount Elbrus expedition that you did. But just before we get to that, it's extremely ambitious, really, considering that you weren't so much an alpinist, more of a kind of known to be, a, um, I guess, an extreme skier in those days. And you were skiing about, I've seen, you know, all you have to do, listeners, go on YouTube, uh, look up Danny, you can look at some of the stuff that he was skiing back in the day on the skis that you were skiing it on. In... One of my colleagues in the industry said this to me the other day. I wrote it on social media. Said this: this was back in the day when people didn't film themselves unless they could really, really ski, because the equipment was different, difficult, and there wasn't really the access. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't put out a VHS tape unless you were pretty confident in deep snow on, on those old skis. You know, two twenties or whatever, skinny, sixty odd mil underfoot. Um, how? Well, one, 
you know, what was it like to ski that stuff? Presumably you didn't have the awareness of avalanche and stuff, but secondly, like, presumably you don't ski on that, that kind of equipment anymore. Yeah, you know, skiing on those skis was an athletic feat. It required a lot of athleticism. Hmm. And that basically meant there was a lot of movement. Movement mattered. Up and down, pumping your legs, pull, reaching with your arms. Because we skied in the snow, not on it. Yeah. Today, we on it. So when you're in it, you know, you got to get out of it. And you got to go back in it. Mm-hmm. You got to get out of it. When people see the amount of turns we made they're exhausted by looking at it mm-hmm. you know um we were doing jump turns for you know four five six seven thousand vertical feet mm-hmm. um there's one shot uh, in a warren miller film with uh, the famed skier kevin andrews and myself 75 powder eight turns you know we would have won any powder eight contest of, of the day i mean they're unbelievable they're in portillo chile mm-hmm. and you know 75 and we the run ended with a train trussle that we jumped over and then we continued our powder eights. So the timing of that is amazing, right? So, you know, what it was was athleticism. Uh, Of course, we didn't know any different because there wasn't any different. And, And so being a student of the sport and the movements and the repetition, uh, that I learned as a kid, it was mattered to me. And I, I like that comment, you know, that you know, this was back in the day when you wouldn't shoot yourself if you weren't very good. I mean, it's it's somewhat true. Like, uh, but when you look across the sort of the genre of the ski movies, uh, there were there were some amazing athletes uh, on skis, um, you know, both Olympians and otherwise. Um, so it was really something. I think it was a very athletic. When you you talk about getting you know playing a a soccer game and being sore afterwards, <laughs> yeah, he runs back then and not being sore, you know, in perspective, it's like I couldn't imagine. So it's really quite something, and you know, it's different today. Movement is uh, refined on the bigger ski, the wider ski, the shaped ski. Um, it's a little more efficient, a lot more efficient. Um, and uh, people are skiing faster because they're on the snow, not in the snow. Mm-hmm. And that speed has brought a new element to things. Uh, it's allowed, you know, sort of for bigger tricks and, and, and other things that we couldn't do. Um, so it, it's a game changer, the technology as it always is. And it's just, uh, a, a different playing field today having skied both do you is there a part of you that, that kind of misses that old those old days the old equipment the old yeah. style you know only in uh, only in a sort of uh, romantic way you know um, you know I, in my springtime home in Val d'Isere you know I've got a beautiful pair of Elan you know, one sixteen. You know, wide. Yeah. And you know, and some people that's narrow for them today. That's you know, one twenties and oh, wider yeah. and all this. But but one sixteen for me is as wide as I go, and I only use that ski in France because there's space for mm-hmm. that ski. Um, 
So I think that there's sort of to have, there's a right tool for the job today, depending on the place and where you ski. You know, I, I joke with like Jason Leventhal of J Skis and the founder of Line Skis, you know, that, you know, an 88 underfoot is wide. <laughs> and they, oh, yeah. they, you know, and they scoff at it. You know, I've shown up to the helipad in, in Alaska with my 88s. And uh, the, 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 you know, new school kids are like, who's the old man, right? And I'm like, I'm on a really wide ski. I'm on a really wide ski. Um, so, you know, I don't sort of miss, you know, the 210s. And the, they weren't that efficient. Um, they, they, you know, we, we made them work. Um, but the new technology is far superior. I don't think, you know, there's no going back sort of thing. Hmm. It's just like when you drive a new car and then you go back into the hot rod of the 70s. Uh, they look cool, but they drive like shitty, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's all that sort of thing. So, I don't know. I love the new stuff. Um, and, of course, you know, I'm older, so I appreciate it more. It's allowed me to stay in the game. It's allowed me to continue to get off piste a lot. Um and I, I have a, I have some limits to it. I still prefer to turn than the straight line. I, I still think turning by an untracked piece of snow is like unforgivable. Like yeah. I want to track it, uh, yeah. and I don't want my tracks to be straight. You know, I, I, I love turning. I love the feeling. The whole reason why I ski is to turn. Mm -hmm. right, let's face it. Uh, I turn for the feeling of the G four. I that's what I'm addicted to. Um, you know, I, I say all the time, we are of the turning generation, you know. Um, there's a whole group of kids out there that don't know what that feels like. Um, and they don't appreciate it the way we do because they're doing something else. Let's, before we go on to the other stuff, let's let's jump into that because I think that ties in with, well, I'd love to chat with you about, you know, skiing philosophy and what you're about. And that's the second second conversation in about three days I've had about being in the turn and the turn is where it's at. Um, I've bored the listeners to death with, with my, my own kind of philosophy about what skiing is to me and, and I try to regard it as now as a as a sort of um, aesthetic thing or a personal expression thing really. But for you, the turn, what, is, what does the turn mean to you? Well, the turn is the place where I experience acceleration. You know, the turn is... You know, I, I always tell people, if you're turning to slow down, you're in conflict with the technology on your feet. You know, I've never met one ski engineer that told me they built a ski to go slow. Mm -hmm. um, the ski is built to accelerate. Let's let's be honest about that. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's braking motions that I want can have a controllable acceleration, but the essence of a ski is to arc. And, um, and you know, I'm addicted to that feeling because... You know, I, I hook up, I engage, I, 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 my feet move, my body goes with it. The challenge is, can I keep my upper body with my accelerating feet over my feet? You know, all those sort of things. But in between those turns is the transition. Mm -hmm. And that is peaceful, right? Like, to me, that's, that's the silence between the notes. The turn is the expression of skiing, but the transition is the internalization of skiing. And so I you can't get to transition if you don't turn. 
<laughs> right? So, and I mean a proper arcing, accelerating turn. I don't mean a tail sliding, skiddy, slashy turn. I see no joy in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the kids that are, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a cranky old man too, right? I mean, I get it. The white room looks fun when you create your own cloud and ski through it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do this for me. You're missing the G-force there. That's a breaking move, and it looks cool, but I don't see where the joy is other than on social media. Like, mm-hmm. the internal joy of that, I don't know. But I do know that when my skis hook up on edge and they accelerate through that turn, I'm ignited, and I get to do it again after I pass through that beautiful, peaceful and transition. Mm. And my skis touch again, and I'm gone. And I, I have chased that my entire life. But that doesn't sound to me, respectfully, that doesn't sound to me very much like what... That sounds like more of a sort of an on-piste focus um, where you're normally... You're known for kind of off-piste clinics and uh, extreme clinics and that kind of thing. Are we talking about the same thing? Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we hone in on that... Uh, in powder, in, okay. in windblown, in, in corn snow, uh, off-piece, you know, hooking up the ski. Uh, and, you know, of course, we talk about all feathering and speed control and all these sorts of things. We don't want people accelerating in the off-piece to the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still the essence of skiing is the turn, you know? Um, and and the, all of the body motions. What ha- What's happening with the new ski uh, and the lack of motion people are using uh, is that their feet, their body is behind their feet essentially. Mm-hmm. So they're slashing or skidding or the the lower third of the turn. Yeah. Uh, and they're skiing to break. Why are they skiing to break? Well, they haven't put together the idea that the surface area is overpowering their motion. Mm. You know, when you have a a ninety eight underfoot or a one hundred six underfoot. In a, you know, I'll call it short, in a 168 or 171, mm. you're still being on a 210. Yeah. It just looks different, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And with, with, that, with that increased surface area under your foot, there's only, I talk about this in all my instructional writing, there's only one place for your foot to go. It's in front of your hip. Mm. And it's super to be an athlete with your feet in front of your hips. Yeah. So... How do you regain that body position to pull those feet under your hip? Well, you do that in your transitions, right? You do that in the body alignment. You do that in the pole planting. You do that in where you look. Um, so, you know, we need that off-piste in the off-piste, you know, probably even more than on the piece. Um, so I, I, I think turning is the essence. And the other, you know, really curious and interesting thing about the ski equipment today is it has its own purpose so you know make sure you're on the right ski for the right day in the right conditions because it matters Mm. um you know and if you're a groom skier well get a piece ski and enjoy that uh if you're going out of bounds or off piste and you want to ski in the powder yeah, you're going to want something to float, but you don't need the same ski that you would go heli skiing in. 
Mm. For sure. Yeah, I agree. When you talk about the move that you make in transition, let's get let's get right into it. When it. at that moment of transition, your move to get the next turn going, where do you think or one, where do you think that's coming from? And then how is, are you quite square at transition or are you having a slight, um, are you having any kind of rotation or rotational separation at that point? What, what's your, what, how would you best describe the move that you make to catch up with those accelerating skis and to put the skis behind you ready for the next turn? Yeah, you know, we should state that I'm qualified in nothing. Right? Like I have no cert- certified in nothing. Okay, so yeah. I know hold those certificates. I've only own experience, uh, and I teach from that point. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I look at kids racing today. Mm-hmm. All I see is their hips are too far back, and they're being coached to do it. Okay. And I don't see them standing up. Nobody, you know, the the, 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 the great institute, teaching institutions of the world have basically thrown up, out. They yeah. don't want it anymore. Talk about through. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you what. That works at the highest level. When you have somebody who understands body mechanics and can do it and knows what you are describing. Yeah. But for young athlete developing who doesn't know what the word through is or move through the turn, they need to see, experience, and internalize what that feels like. And the way to teach that is to get them to stand up so and get forward. So what, how do I see this working out? You know, this has been so such a disaster for the U.S. ski team that we don't even have a male skier on the World Cup slalom circuit. Yeah, who is the like, well? The last guy was David David Trudowski, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So we're not being successful in this technique. I'm sorry. These kids cannot handle the transition. We know that because they're blowing out of courses, and because of the point system, they don't need to finish these races anymore. They can just blow out and say, I'll do it again tomorrow in a different race. Mm-hmm. You, used to, you used to have to climb up, go around the gate, and finish the damn race. So we're instilling quitting, <laughs> right? Uh, we're teaching them to, to be out of, we're trying to get them to be in balance from an out-of-balance position. And the problem I see it is it's because they're looking at imagery of Michaela Schifrin with a low hip but only when her feet are extended out to the side. Yeah. But when she's in transition, her feet are under her hips. And yeah. that might be in a quick moment. It might doesn't and she's, you know, extending in that moment, not squatting, you know. Mm-hmm. So so it's super important. So when you ask me that question, you know, I'm a believer in standing up. So as my skis accelerate for a number of different reasons, one, basically they're designed to accelerate, and two, I know how to punch it, so they're going to accelerate, that means my feet are going to be in front of my hip. The easiest and fastest way for this old dog to regain balance is to stand up. 
Mm -hmm. and apply hips, shoulders, and hands forward and dive into the next turn and let that foot go out and under me again. So, yes, I do believe, you know, there's a ton of, there's different techniques. There's oftentimes I ski with a ton of rotation and separation, lower body rotation, upper body, somewhat square. Of course, it's never 100% square, right? Mm -hmm. um, but somewhat square. And other times if I'm arcing, um, I might be more countered with my upper body. And that's the other thing. Have we as an industry progressed our teaching to the technology? I give it a flat no. A ah, flat no. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have not we have not said if you're skiing on a 106, here's a 106 technique, and we need to. Mm -hmm. What we're saying, you know, here's how you turn, regardless of what skis you're on. That's not true today. Mm. That was true 30, 40 years ago, but now we have kids with uh, or and skiers of all types skiing in AT boots where there's no ankle flexion built into the construction of the boot. Mm -hmm. Kids whose uh, shafts of those boots are not flexed forward, they're straight up and down. Yeah. So when you have a straight up and down knee, how do you angle it? Um, you know, when you're on a wide ski, you know, what's, what's the technique for that? Because actually banking on a wide ski makes a ton of sense and it works really, really well. That's right. Um, but we don't really teach it um, or it's not part of our instruction manuals anywhere that I can find. Mm. Um, at, you know, particularly at the interski level, um, so, you know, I'm challenging the industry. Let's, let's catch up to the technology that the, that the manufacturers have created. You got, we're all stuck in the dark ages with our ski technique. And if you don't believe me, look at the results of the U S and the UK ski teams. <laughs> not very good. Um, so what's going on here? You know, what's going on here? Maybe we should go back to the basic athletic movements that keep people balanced, well in motion. Yeah. Fires me up. Yeah. Fires me up, Dave. No, I'm with you. I hear you. I hear you. And there's definitely something to be said for that, you know, especially with regards to people who, oh, I've had this before, you know, people show up for lessons on, on extremely fat skis and, and they're looking for kind of peace technique. And yeah. you're like, well, we're not really going to get anywhere with what you've got on your feet. Um, <laughs> You know, like I can I can give you the generics, but you know, you're trying to ski a vocal mantra down down a red run that's you know hard. We don't, you're not really going to get very far, you know, with what the movements you need to be able to make to ski this slope competently. You ain't going to be able to make them because your skis are too wide, and and unless you have extremely flexible knees and durable yeah. knees. You're not going to be able yes. to make those those movements that you need to make because the sheer leverage force you're going to need to get those skis over onto onto an edge, and kind of the the ability in your hip to get that kind of width between your knees is is not going to happen on those skis. Um, and we've talked also and before. And, go and specifically, what's going to happen, right? Is they're going to take the inside ski and use it as a platform instead of putting it on edge. Yeah, you can't help it because it's so wide. Right, exactly. it's it's in the way. You can, yeah, you you can't get it out of the way. It's too it's too big. Yeah, I agree. And then the other thing that we've talked about extensively on on this podcast before, I think, is is um, is the design of kids kids ski boots. 
Um, mm. uh, the one I especially hate are those ones with the extra buckle across the ankle. Um, the three, the three buckle ones, and and you know you like just say to the kids, you you've got to go back, or the parents you have to go back to the skit. Yeah, you have to go back to the rental shop to wherever you got these from and change them because you are not your kid is not going to progress out of a snowplow with this boot on. It's just not going to happen. So you know, get your get some get the ability for your kid to be able to flex their ankle, and then and then we can talk because otherwise you're just wasting your money. You know, I'll take it. But I don't want to take it. I would like to get your your child to be better at skiing. What do you prefer? Right? Do you prefer? Uh, just a regular ski boot. Like it can have, it needs to have one or two buckles across the foot, and it, then it needs to have a proper cuff. Like so, it needs to have a cuff that's hinged at the ankle, yeah. and it needs to have one yeah. or two buckles at the top, depending on the age of the kid and the size of the boot. But what you cannot do is have that. You must know the kind of boot that I'm talking about, and I don't know who yeah. makes it, but I, I, I've yeah. see, I see it all the time. It's like a it's it's like the old um, what do you call it? Um, no, but the three yeah, buckle boot because yeah, third it's got a buckle, buckle that goes across yeah. the ankle, like, and so right. in in the actual eventual angle, it's like a right angle. It has no forward lean, and kids have already they're already balanced slightly back because their head is heavier in proportion to the rest of their body, so. If you then restrict the ability of that kid to kind of flex his ankle forward, his or her ankle forward, it's it's just not going to work. You know, like you, you're wasting your time. Right. It drives right. me bananas. You know, the same as you, just hypes me up. That particular subject, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let me, yeah, let me, oh, well, it's a great place to go back to, but we took... You do an amazing write-up in your book about that really ambitious expedition to Mount Elbrus in Russia. Um, those of you who want to read the whole account, you can um, you can read it in the book for sure, and I'll link to that in the podcast. Um, you were going there to promote a brand, is it Degre 7, Degre 7, um, that you were going there for, and basically conditions went against you and you got caught in a, in a big storm on one of the most deadly mountains uh, in, in you, amongst the, the seven peaks and your idea was to ski back down and that kind of thing. A lot of people died in that storm and you managed to get out of it. Um, when you look back at that, presumably you recognise yourself as sort of young and terribly ambitious at that time. Is that is that what you take away from it with that historical historical perspective? Yeah, you know, it was an ambitious climb, and it was a misconceived uh, trip from from the onset. The idea that we would climb and ski one of the seven summits of the world. You know, that Degree 7 ran a promotion around the world that if you bought a piece of clothing, you were entered into the contest. And people won a trip to Elbrus, Russia, the USSR, uh, before before the fall, yeah. uh, just for buying a beanie. Their only qualification was they bought a beanie. Um, and, you know, Patrick Valentine had passed away. And they wanted to celebrate Patrick's life 
Um, and what they wanted to do was give run a promotion where people got to see basically the Valentine guides in Chamonix come together with these up and coming extremists from the U S mm-hmm. and, uh, that was going to be a, a, a feature on ESPN at the time. Um, so there was some, you know, just in there, what I said, you know, anybody with any sort of, you know, sort of mountain experience might think, mm, should we rethink this? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I personally was all about it. I wanted to go. We were super excited to be sponsored by Degree 7. Mm. Patrick Valentin was my brother John's, one of my brother John's heroes. John had skied with Valentin and met Valentin in Chamonix in the mid-80s. Um, and, you know, they would just be coming distributed in the U.S. And I saw an opportunity for a sponsorship deal, and so they, they loved it. Um, but, you know, in hindsight, I, I was not prepared to go to, you know, altitude. Um, although one of the things I say is, you know, in the book is my 24-year-old self would have always chosen to do what he did. Mm, um, mm. My my 57-year-old self, probably not, but yeah. my, my my 20 self, you know, I was going to, I was going to take the challenge. What, what, what year was it? Uh, Elbrus, this expedition. Ninety. Yeah. Ninety-nine. Yeah. It's an interesting um, time that in time. The, the the reason I say that is because the, the the one of the I always look back at the kind of the the music and the culture of the kind of the eighties or late eighties, and there was a sort of like I know that you were in and around the music scene as well at that time, and like. I look back at just how big some of the bands and some of the rock musicians and stuff were at that time. Like the sheer scale of ambition that was going on in 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 that time, like everywhere, really, was quite amazing. You know, if you grew up around that time, it's no probably no no. No coincidence that you would go. You think, yeah, I'll just go to Elbrus. We'll climb that and we'll ski back down. You know, like <laughs> how could it be, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's a strange time yeah, in time, that, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it was a very interesting time, and of course, um, if you grew up during the Cold War, um, the idea that you were going to go into Mother Russia was like something I had never really thought of before, like mm. that. And we were just, you know, the wall came down in the fall of 89. Um, it was just starting to crumble, uh, the, the Iron Curtain. Mm. And for an 80s kid to go, you know, to sort of the unfit, unbid, you know, the kingdom that you would never put it, the evil kingdom, that was quite something. You know, when we got to very interesting times, because when you got to Russia, uh, what did people know of America, right? Hmm. They knew they knew McDonald's, and they knew MTV, yeah, and CNN. So, and they knew Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. So, and mu- music, they knew music. So, and what did we know of Russia? Like less than that. Yeah, we didn't know anything. Um, 
you know, we just thought they all wanted to kill us, mm. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. that was our whole mindset. And, and, and as an American at the time, I, I think a lot of people don't, you know, people forgotten, uh, forgotten, you know, what the Cold War culture was in hindsight, right? And uh, what it was like to go to bomb shelter, you know, what nuclear fallout shelters and, and hide under your desk as a kid and mm-hmm. all those sort of things. Um, so it was a pretty far-fetched thing. Now, we had gone and jumped off the Berlin Wall uh, in February of that year, 1990. And, and we went to through East Berlin and, and East Germany, and, and we saw the empty stores, mm. the no food, uh, you know, the no closed restaurants. We saw just really a, another world. Um, mm. And we had encountered uh, one of the things we did when we jumped off the Berlin Wall was we joke we skied the East and the West face. You know, of course, there's no yeah. snow in Berlin. We were landing in mud puddles, but. Um, when we landed in no man's land, you know, to think that just months before you would have been killed to be in no man's land. Yeah. Um, and when the East German guards pulled up to get us out of no man's land, they had no more guns, which was probably strange for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they just saw kids in, in day glow outfits and skis. They didn't know what the hell we were doing, yeah. you know, making a movie. Um, so they kind of shuttle us back through the hole in the wall. But, um, you know, so going to Russia at that time, you know, we had no supplies. We we, mm-hmm. we had no food. Uh, the Russians, you know, we had tea. Uh, the, the, and then you had all this other cultural issues going on. We were from nine different countries. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the lead guides were French, you know, Chamonix elite mountain guides. They, they wanted nothing to do with young hotshot American kids, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we are pain in the ass to them. Yeah. Um, and in hindsight, you know, I guess I never considered that the goal was not to summit. I think that was sort of like, I don't think it was the intention of the trip. Now that I think about it, I don't think the Chamonix guides thought anybody on this trip was qualified to summit. Mm-hmm. Um, problem was they never stated that they never said that. Yeah. So, and we were going to, movie about it and I'm a promoter so I was going to make a big deal out of it Mm. Um, and you know the combination for that is a deadly combination which you know I'm lucky to be here to to share this insight about but you know that that storm easily could have killed me no doubt well if I I mean I don't want to ruin the story because I think you should you should read it for yourself listener if you can but uh, it's, it's, it's a great book and it's an amazing story but the like you had your well you know you were close to death you summited that's fair play to you you know and and you had that moment at the top but after that you very nearly died and i'm curious to know about the a little bit more about the kind of the whole near death you know experiences that you had um on that if you're if you're willing to talk about them yeah that was um you know, I was alone in a snow cave uh, that I had dug, and I had been abandoned in by some fellow expedition members. Mm. Um, and and uh, I 
By the time I found myself into that snow cave, I had been on the hill since 6.30 in the morning without food or water, and it was probably midnight. Um, I was exhausted. I was dehydrated. I was somewhere between 15,000 and 17,000 feet. Mm. Um, and I was, I had just spent hours digging this cave with my feet and my hands in, a, in an ice axe. Mm. Ice, um, so I was sweating from the inside. I will credit, I do credit, uh, degree seven clothing that was bomb, bomber proof, really warm stuff for mm. saving my life. Um, might as well have been wearing a, a sleeping bag. It was so, you know, worthy of the challenge. Um, but, you know, for me, I had, uh, when I passed out in that cave, I had a lot of different apparitions. Uh, and one would be described as a white light uh, moment. Um, you know, I believe I met my guardian angels. Um, and uh, they were telling me to follow them. Mm. And uh, we at the time, you know, we the reason why we dug snow caves was we were in the middle of the crevasse field and we were lost. And we had, prior to digging the caves, we had performed a crevasse rescue. Me and another Russian uh, mm. saved the guy out, out of the hole. And, um, you know, so that was, you know, for me, this idea of follow me, uh, I, I didn't want to go with him. Now, you know, what, what were they saying to me, you know, in this apparition? Where were they going to take me? Uh, I remember having the really clear thought that if I go with them, if I did pass through, I'm going to be fine. Uh, but it would be really hard on my brother, who was, I didn't know where he was, down below. Hmm. You know, that they really had the thought that uh, death is a human experience. You know, for the spirit, it's, it's a joyful experience mm. and uh and then i would wake up from that uh apparition and vomit blood and shake and shiver and i had another more comical apparition that somebody had brought me from a convenience store you know hosted you know twinkies and, and like uh, munchies you know yeah. uh, to eat um but you know years later i come to realize that those guardian angels did exactly what they said. They, they guided me down through the crevasses. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've changed my perspective on that. I, I think they actually did what they were sent to do, which be, uh, the next day, uh, Sasha, who found me in my snow cave, and I believe kept me alive, mm. we read 14 people, and we navigated the ice fields in a storm successfully you know we did a total of three crevasse rescues yeah. in the, in over the 38 hours but um you know you know that was quite something but you know you, you touch on something because uh you know i have never really spoken about this i we did make a movie and i was interviewed you know uh within a week after that trip uh and that interview is pretty powerful but yeah. And it put that in a, parts of that interview in a film. But, um, you know, one of the reasons why I never really spoke about it is I didn't think people would believe me. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my friend Claudio Abate died on that trip. We say in the book that 15 people died. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers are, are some, some say it was almost double that. Yeah. Um, 
we could verify 15. Um, and over the years, I myself have said more, but you know, for the sake of not exaggerating, uh, we can we could you know count fit 15. Mm. Um, and uh, but Claudio died alone in a snow cave, similar to my situation. Mm. Uh, and the reason why they found him after the storm was his hand was sticking out of the snow. Mm. Um, and he was actually alive when they found him, but they uh, they didn't have any helicopters or anything like that, so they put him on the sled with the other dead bodies, and he died in transportation. Wow. Um, but when I think about that, you know, yeah, that, that easily could have been me. Sasha found my ice axe outside the cave. That's how he knew I was in there. Mm. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, there's some other things that we talk about in the book, which, you know, really are quite hard to believe in today's day and age, but because of the Cold War and everything, and if, with the proper prospect of, of, of that day, uh, make total sense. Um, mm. You know, we were in Russia during a time when Albania, the first breakaway republic, protested on May Day in Red Square. Mm. And that Albanian walked into Red Square wrapped in sheets and lit himself on fire. Um, mm. That was quite an event. Um, so, you know, the USSR was crumbling at the time and uh, the, the Cold War was a real thing. Uh, and it was a tumultuous time in world history. Um, what we found and what we always found, and we went on a quest to do this over the years, was to travel the war-torn areas and find commonalities between mountain people. Mm. Um, and that's really what was the end result of my experience. You know, kindness, uh, compassion, Sasha saved my life. Um, when we skied with the Kurds during the first Persian Gulf War and the border with Turkey and Iraq, uh, you know, we found the same thing there. Um, when we skied in Romania after the revolution, we found the same thing there. When mm. I snuck into Beirut, uh, Lebanon, for my peace ski, uh, I found the same thing there with the Middle Eastern culture. Mm. People in the map curious about each other and kind. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a big draw to skiing. I think that's what keeps people coming back to the mountains is they, they meet strangers and become friends. And uh, we try to sort of have that theme throughout all our films over our career. Will you um, we'll, we'll leave the reader of the book to discover the interesting thing about Sasha, um, which I think is fascinating. Um, but the... Were you... Would you describe yourself as religious before that moment? Or did that come kind of after that? No, my, you know, my, I'm, I'm raised, I'm, I'm, I'm of uh, Catholic heritage. You can't escape uh, that coming from Boston, can you? Yeah, you're, you know, it's part of the deal. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what I say is my family is, uh, you know, soaked in it. We are, we are bathed and baptized in Catholicism and, uh, you know, when I was a young boy, sitting in the pews, listening to the priest tell me that Jesus was going to save me, I always wondered, from what? Mm. The hell do I need? Or what? Uh, you know, I got my mom, my dad. You know, we're doing all right here. Like, save me from what? Um, and I, you know, over life, I think 
sometimes you get gain perspective like oh well he helped there or you know that helped here faith helped here yeah. uh, my spirituality got me through that one uh, just in perseverance alone you know part of the human condition we were talking about earlier is is uh, is being grateful and and also part of the human experience is suffering um, and why and so I've always been curious about all of that and um I think what happened in Elbrus was an awakening of that. I was a rebellious kid. I was a, you know, an unruly dude. Uh, uh, and I think it was an awakening to uh, a bigger purpose. Um, and we, you know, we dedicate the book uh, to my uncle Dan, who was my mother's twin, who died in Korea. He was a pilot in mm-hmm. the war. Um, and my brother Dan. Um, who died as a baby. He was older than me um, mm. before I was born. And my cousin Dan. <laughs> there were all these aunts that passed. And uh, in my grandparents' uh, kitchen, there was the family tree. And as a kid, I'd sit in that kitchen, the same kitchen my mom grew up in, and ski down the middle of the parkway in, mm. and look at that dance on the wall. And... I think there was something in me that that kind of wondered about my own fate. Um, what would what what did the future hold for this Dan? Yeah. And I think escaping uh, Elbrus uh, with a really near miss, you know, pretty 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 damn close, yeah. kind of put me on a track to ask questions and to seek more. I had always been a seeker, but to seek more and. You know, I think that from that perspective um, is why I wrote the book 30 years afterwards, because I had never wanted my story to end with that story. Yeah. I wanted my to begin with that story. Mm. And my entire adult life has been shaped by Elbrus. Okay. What, how are you doing for time? I've got two other things I'd love to ask you, but if you're pushed, I, I can, we can let them go. I'm all yours, my friend. All right. That's jolly decent of you. Um, let me ask you two more things, if that's all right. Um, one, we share a common thing in that about, I'm a little bit behind you, but about, it must be what, seven or so years ago now, I gave up drinking for good. Um, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And... I know that you did the same a long, long time ago, and it probably was a little bit harder when you were doing it. Um, but I don't know, I suppose it's hard for anyone anytime they, they, they give up. But um, I personally, my experience of that, well, one, it's, it's very, very difficult to do in the ski industry. So much of what happens in the ski industry revolves around alcohol, um, and to a secondary extent, I'd say probably drugs. And the... I don't know, the, the, what it gave, I, I personally had had enough, but I came to a gradual, real, gradual realisation that I just didn't want to do this anymore. And my life since that point has been so productive that you would not believe, like, like night and day, you know, you can get so much more done. What was, um, I'd love to know, I'd love to hear your perspective on, on that, on sobriety, of being a sober person within skiing. Yeah, not easy, man. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I don't find it a challenge. I want to say, like, I'm not a, a guy who's going to AA meetings and, and all that sort of stuff. I just had enough. I didn't want to do it anymore, so I stopped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, for me, I was, 
you know, I, I, I was, you know, look, in the 70s and the 80s, uh, it was all to play for, so to speak, uh, in Boston. Mm. And it was, a, it was a pretty wild time. And growing up in a big family and hanging out with older kids, as we talked about, I was exposed to a lot of things. My mom was right. It wasn't age appropriate for me to hang out with <laughs> yeah. kids who were eight years older than me. You know, uh, I, I learned to drive and drove frequently on the highways at age 13. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, introduced to, uh, uh, you know, substances and drinking. Uh, I, I was a Got, I had seen a lot of people drink and drive, and I drank and drove a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, never really thought otherwise. I thought that's what everybody did. And mm-hmm. in my life, that's what a lot of people did. Um, you know, after Elbrus, I had tried to stop partying. I always say I didn't have a drinking problem. I had a partying problem. I had too much fun. Uh, yeah. And uh, especially living in ski resorts, right? Like it's just like a like yeah. being a kid in a candy shop. There's, there's, it's like being um, on holiday all the time, every day. And yeah. you know, think of we're traveling to the top resorts around the world, mm. right? Uh, and we're being hosted by those resorts. We're we're being celebrated when we roll into town as a Warren Miller film crew, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um, you know, it, it ramped us or ramped me up to a whole new level. Um, and, you know, I was all about it. Um, you know, we en- I enjoyed uh, sort of the notoriety of that um, and lived, lived the life. You know, um, we hit it as hard at night as we did during the day. We got up all day and, and hit it harder um, and skied hard. Um, you know, there were, it was not without its problems. Um, you know, you can't compete on the World Pro Mogul Tour hungover. It's hard to do. Yeah. Um, you can't. You can try and compete on the World Pro Mogul Tour on hallucinogenics, but I'll tell you, that's hard to do too. Mm. Um, so, you know, after Elbrus, I was kind of in a world of hurt. Um, I was in a situation where, you know, I had lost friends. Um, there was a lot of blame. I shouldn't have, you know, you should have turned around. Why'd you go, why'd you go past turnaround time? You put yourself in that situation. So a lot of finger pointing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had lived through something and experienced things I didn't think people would understand or believe me. And I was, you know, in the city of Boston, you talk about climbing and skiing Mount Elbrus. They, they don't know where the hell that is. Mm-hmm. You know, my friends back here, they, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And, you know, really my brother and others, the film crew were like, you didn't die. What's up? You're good. Mm. You know? Mm. Um, so I, I was in a bad place and, uh, that kind of changed the nature of my, uh, partying. Um, and so I, I needed to get some help and I did. Um, I had some people in my life at the time, um, that, that saw a kid that needed some help and, and offered help. Mm. And, um, and um, and I took it, and and like you say, you know, it's a rocket fuel. You know, you, you know, waking up clear-eyed every day, oh, and possibilities, yeah. and not regret, um, and not living from a place of shame, but a place of uh, can do. Mm. Your world changes, and so that that happened for me. Uh, it's been been 31 years for me, um, and uh, you know. Being involved in the UK ski industry as as involved as I have been over the years, you know, we ran the first ski test for the UK here in New England 
in the 90s with Fall Line Magazine and uh, had a long run, you know, with, with the UK and Snow and Rock for a long time. And, uh, you know, I knew a lot of crazy, you know, Brits. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I knew a lot of sober Brits. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think that there's a lot of power and clarity and, and that's what sobriety's done for me. Yeah. Okay. Last question. I think that, I don't know, uh, I was just on someone's Facebook channel watching some clips from the Freeride free ride World Tour. Yeah. I wonder what your perspective on the Freeride World Tour is. Because I don't, I don't get it don't understand it. I'm sure it has its purpose and for, you know, someone's, someone's organizing it, someone's making money out of it. And, and, and I'm sure, but the concept of judged off piste skiing, like the stuff that you were doing back in the day now judged and prize given. I know that you were quite quite scathing in the book about the initial attempts to organize something like that. I think it was in Alaska. It doesn't what what it seems to have morphed into is what big tricks can you do down this face off of various features. You know, I saw a guy doing a double backflip and stuff. That to me is not what skiing sort of freely is you know it's not very to my eyes it doesn't look very stylish that's a personal opinion um there's no it's a grace to it you know it looks like you've got guys picking their way down faces so that they can perform a flip off of a certain cliff i'm sure don't get me wrong that is an extremely incredible thing to do um but for me it kind of takes away the ethos of um of what extreme skiing was about how how do you feel about that these days well you know when i look at the olympics you know i i always say summer or winter games you you what you're witnessing is the mutant the mutation of sport right mm -hmm. uh, somebody once said hey grab your skates and let's race around the pond and now we're speed skating mm -hmm. right um, the mogul skier can't slalom ski. The park kid can't downhill be a downhill racer. Like there's no crossover, right? They're specialty. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and and then you have to ask yourself why. You know, well, in specialization and 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 in new school or the extreme world, we use the word progression. And progression is important aspect to what they're trying to prove, right? We have to do it differently. Mm -hmm. You know. Nobody wants to dress like their parents, right? Um, so <laughs> yeah. there's an identity. Um, what, what do I think about it? I, I, I think that, that whenever you add in judging, you, you limit, not expand. Mm. Uh, you build boundaries, you don't break them. And, and you know, the kid, I, I watch those clips. I cover, as a journalist, I cover the world tool. Um, look, I can't do it. I couldn't have done it then. I could definitely can't do it now. Uh, people ask me a question, where is it all going to go? Where, where does it stop? Hmm. Right. If, if they're going to throw a double back, you know, on a face that never really got skied even before, or in the conditions would never think about skiing it, which is what they're doing. Hmm. 
it's they're on a schedule. They hound it. They got to get it done. They're putting kids in really dangerous situations. Yeah. Uh, the injuries have are through the roof. Um, you know, I've said to the organizer of the X Games, what, what do you, what's going to happen when somebody dies live on TV? Mm. Their answer is happens in NASCAR. <laughs> like, Serious? That's a that's a terrible answer. And yeah. um, but it's their answer. So we're going to you know we see it. We we've had plenty of athletes die in the World Tour. Um, one was too many, and, and there's been others. Um, but the kids want to take the risk. The money's there to do it. Um, the skill level's there to do it. Uh, but it's a different sport. It's a mutant of backcountry skiing, and uh, it has its place. Um, turning, although they'll tell you turning and fluidity and line matter, but it doesn't. The air matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, what you under, what you see, you know, what Elbrus taught me and, and other accidents taught me through my ski career is that life is fragile. Um, and skiing around rocks increases the fragility of it all, you know, like, mm. so I don't know. It, they're, they're very close to the edge. But where is it all going to go? And I, I think that Shane McConkey was on the forefront of where it's going and where it's where what we see. That in extreme sports, we're going to see a morphing of it's going to be multi-sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next the next phase is somebody's going to do that with a wingsuit, right? Yeah. Uh, or a speed flyer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're bound to have speed flying competitions if they don't already. They're going to, mm-hmm. right? So um, this idea of multi-sport, um, you know, and I just interviewed and got off the phone with a guy who was a speed flyer who you know broke his back, so. You know, mm-hmm. life is fragile. And uh, his thought when he woke up from his 10-day coma was, I've blown it. I had it all, and I blew it. And, you know, that's in, a one in, hell of a way to... In what, perspe- in what sense did he think he had it all? Like in terms of his, his sport was, or just life in general? In life. He was healthy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, what a statement, right? Um my next project's called Dying to Ski. It's about all my dead friends, professional friends. Mm. And, uh, you know, in, that, in, that, in this project that we're working on now is, you know, is dying doing what you love a good death? That's the question we ask. Mm. Um, you know, my, my perspective is that sport is designed to enhance your life, not end it. Um, and so you have to ask the athlete, you know, if his life's being enhanced. And if it is, then that's sort of the nature of sport. Yeah. But the, the best answer I've ever gotten from is dying doing what you love, a good death, is a pretty famous skier's widow saying to me, you know, he loved me more. And I was happy to hear that because I'm glad she knew it. And uh, mm-hmm. I I now, when I go to work in Europe, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I spend six weeks working in Europe in avalanche terrain. I, I spend time here in the States and off-piste and out of bounds. Uh, I tell my family and my loved ones, I'm going to work. Mm. This is that. If I die, please don't say I died doing what I love. I love you more. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's perspective. I think it's one, the gift of age. But uh, two, I think at some point there has to be a reality check on where we're going with this whole thing. Mm. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, but as long as, you know, and we talk about this in the book, you know, as long as there's, 
young men seeking adventure, we're going to have all sorts of things happen. So um, it's a fun, wild world. I, I think our job as mentors to the industry is to is to raise the question um, and to and to in ways raise awareness so that people can decide. And people always decide. People thought I was crazy, and they were right. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, um, I heartily recommend your book. Uh, it was great read, uh, 30 Years in the White Haze. And is there, uh, what I'll do is I'll add some links as to where one could find it, but is there, is there anything else you want to add? Because everyone who comes on this gets a chance to plug themselves. And I know that you run ski clinics in the US and, and in France. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, yeah, skiclinics.com. You can check out my whole schedule. We're... Uh this year we'll be in Ingleberg, we'll be in Zermatt, we'll be in Lax, we'll be in Val d'Isere, of course, with my good friend Henry Schneewin. Uh, and we'll be over at the uh, snow show coming up here in October. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll be doing a book tour through Alice Brigham's locations okay. uh, in, in and around so people can come find me and grab a book. That'd be fun and talk about trips and ski stories. And uh, that's one of the real real special things about doing projects like this is the people you meet they, they, and how they connect with the book and why and uh, there's a lot of people in the book a lot of memories for people in this book about the era and the time and the people so I yeah think that's for sure we have a lot of listeners in the US as well so you should probably tell them where you're going to be um, if you're doing a book tour in the US as well yeah you bet if you go to Dan if you go to white-hayes.com or dan-egan.com you can see the whole tour I'll be in Colorado coming up here in mid to late September uh, in, in the in uh, the Vale area in Copper Mountain. And, uh, and then I'll be at the Denver Ski Show in early November. Um, and, of course, all over the East Coast here in New England and Boston at the Boston Ski Show. Uh, and my winter home is at Big Sky. You can come ski with me there uh, at my Dan Egan Steep Camps. We run them all winter long. Uh, right out of Big Sky, the biggest skiing in America. It's amazing. I love it. I love it. The um, yeah, I mean, the, and and this this will be great for all the listeners over in the US because like my podcast is often accused of being a bit British centric, even though I'm kind of based in Switzerland and, and it's the nature of kind of the people I know, I guess. But uh, but I'm really really glad that I've managed to have you on and have this perspective and kind of fill in a little bit of background color also to these uh to these books that i've been reading about you know the american midwest and and uh and boston as well so i'm really really pleased to have done this thank you so much uh thanks for your time david and uh yeah look forward to seeing you i hope we can ski